We are living in crazy times, and so much of what is going on around us is broken. In the middle of this brokenness, we want to live lives that are filled with God's power so that we can live in holiness and make a difference. Elijah was a man who, like us, was living in crazy and wicked times, and yet God's power worked through him in powerful ways. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Yes. Now, how many of you over the course of this weekend have moved on hard to Christmas? Right? You, you got Christmas decorations going on and Christmas music. Have you made that transition? Yes, many of you have at this point, uh, which is wonderful. Today in our sermon, Elijah is actually going to help us make a little bit of a transition to Christmas. And it's going to be fun as we process that together. This is our last sermon in our Elijah sermon series. And it's been quite a ride during this sermon series. We saw Elijah walk onto the pages of Scripture in 1 Kings 17, directly into the courtroom of the king of Israel, and declare that there was going to be a drought. And it didn't rain for the next three and a half years. Where did Elijah go during that time? God took him to the wilderness where he hung out by a brook and God miraculously provided for him through ravens. And then when that brook dried up, God took him and sent him to a destitute widow in the hometown of wicked Queen Jezebel and God miraculously provided for Elijah and the widow there in her home. While he was staying there, the only son of that widow died. And God used Elijah to amazingly and miraculously bring that little boy, that boy, back to life. We saw God and Baal have a fire-starting contest on the top of Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal dancing around, and yet Baal did nothing that day. God won the battle thoroughly as he sent fire from the sky that not only consumed the offering, it consumed the entire altar. Elijah went a little further up the mountain and he prayed that God would send rain. And God ended that three and a half year drought and sent torrential rains upon the land. The people of Israel, they acknowledged that God had won the battle that day. That the Lord, he is God. But the wicked king and queen of Israel did not. As a matter of fact, they swore that they would kill Elijah. And when Elijah looked at Ahab and Jezebel and the fact that they were still worshiping Baal, that they had not repented, they hadn't turned, Elijah felt a bit like a failure. His job was to help turn the leadership of Israel. He was God's prophet for that purpose. And it hadn't happened. And he went into an emotional tailspin and said, God... Why am I even alive? I'm no better than my forefathers. God took Elijah in that state and he called him to the mountain of meeting, to the, the mountain of God's covenant relationship with his people, Mount Sinai. He called him there and reminded him, I'm with you and you're not alone. And he gave him an understudy from that point on who would be with him throughout the rest of his life, a man named Elisha. And in our passage today, Elijah and Elisha know that it is Elijah's last day on the earth. Our passage today is 2 Kings chapter 2. You may want to turn there in your Bibles or in your devices if you'd like to follow along this morning. 
And in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah and Elisha know it's Elijah's last day on the earth. We don't know how they know that. We just know that they know that. And it invites the question of, of all of us, what would we do if we knew this was our very last day on the earth? What would we do with our time? For Elijah, the answer is that he is going to travel around to different locations and visit the faithful prophets who remain. Perhaps he is going from location to location to encourage these faithful prophets. And he starts off by going to the city of Bethel. And as he goes to Bethel, he tries to get Elisha, his understudy, to stay behind. He says, I'm going to Bethel, but Elisha, you should stay here. And what is Elisha's response to being left behind? He says, "Uh uh-uh. No, you cannot shake me, Elijah. And in 1 Kings 2, verse 2, we read, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they go to Bethel together. And there they encounter this group of prophets. And the group of prophets come up to Elisha and they say, Elisha, do do you know that today is your master Elijah's last day on the earth? Apparently these prophets were told too that this is Elijah's last day on the earth. And you know how Elisha responds? Elisha says, yes, I know. Stop talking about it. Right? If we don't talk about it, then maybe I don't have to think about it. Have you ever been in that place? Let's not talk about it, and then maybe it's not a reality. And so Elisha tells these prophets, yeah, I'm aware, but let's not make a big conversation about it. Well, after they visit with those prophets in Bethel, Elijah says, okay, I'm going on to the city of Jericho. And once again, he encourages Elisha to stay behind. And what is Elisha's response to that? Here, listen to this. He says, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you in verse 4. Does that sound familiar? Exact same thing that he said before. And when they go to Jericho together, this group of prophets come, and do you know what they ask Elisha? Hey, Elisha, do you know that today is your master's last day on the earth? And what does Elisha say? Shush. I don't want to talk about this. Right, stop talking about it. And so Elijah says, all right, it's time for me to move on. Elijah's going to go from Jericho to the Jordan River. And once again, he encourages Elisha to stay behind. Any pattern that you're picking up on here? And can you guess what Elisha said? Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. That's word for word for the third time. You're not ditching me, Elijah. You you can't. I am sticking with you. And when they arrived at the Jordan together, we're told that there were a group of 50 prophets who watched Elijah and Elisha from a distance. They watched Elijah and Elisha come up and approach the Jordan River. They wanted to cross, but but how were they going to get across? And Elijah took off his cloak, and in a scene reminiscent of 600 years prior, When Joshua led the people of Israel across this same river, Elijah touches his cloak to the river and the waters divide and Elijah and Elisha walk through on dry ground. God was at work 600 years before this, leading the people of Israel into the promised land. He is at work in the time of Elijah, dividing these same waters. And I guarantee he is at work through his presence and power today. When they get across the river, Elijah asks Elisha, 
hey, before I go, is there anything that I can do for you? And Elisha responds, would you give me a double portion of your spirit? Right, now, what, what does that mean, a double portion of your spirit? Right, an, an extra scoop of your spirit is what I think of. Like, I don't want a single scoop, I want a double scoop. But I think it's probably more than that. I think what Elisha is asking for here is to be Elijah's spiritual firstborn. Within Israel, the firstborn in a household got a double portion of the inheritance. And the idea was that they got a double portion so that they would be the ones who carried on the family business in the family name. And I think what Elisha is asking Elijah for here is to be the spiritual firstborn. I want to carry on the family business. What family business is that? Of being the prophetic voice that encourages, commands Israel to come back to the one true God. Elijah says, that's a tall order. But if you see me taken from the earth, then you'll know that God is going to fulfill that promise. And then in verse 11, we're told that chariots of fire and horses of fire come down and divide the two men. That they pick up Elijah and he goes to heaven in a whirlwind. What? If you're Elisha at this point, what would your reaction have been? Horses and chariots of fire come and divide you from your master and then a whirlwind takes him and brings him to heaven. What would your reaction have been to those events? I'm confident that I would have fainted. I would have just fallen over, astounded at what was going on around me. Elisha's response in verse 12 is to cry out. We're told that in verse 12, he says, he cries out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. With that, Elijah is gone. His life is over here on this earth. This man who lived larger than life, who God used to accomplish some of the most amazing and astounding miracles in all of history, is gone. The one who was known as the man of God, who did the works of God in front of all of Israel, is gone. And there is a very real question about whether God's work will continue at this point with the man of God gone. And as if to answer that question, almost immediately... Elisha takes up the cloak, the mantle of Elijah. And he walks back to the Jordan River. Those 50 prophets still watching from a distance. And somehow Elisha has to get across. And Elisha takes that cloak and he places it into the river. And again, the river Jordan splits and Elisha walks across on dry ground. And immediately we understand the work of God will continue on. The work of God is going to continue on. The parting of the waters when Elisha approaches the Jordan River is so very important. It's absolutely important. Elijah was considered by many Jews to be the greatest prophet of all time. 
which seems to be confirmed by the fact that God has here taken him up to heaven without him even dying. He was known as the the man of God, the voice of God. And there's a very real question about whether God will continue to be present, whether God will continue to work in power and speak to his people with the man of God gone. But when Elisha touches the Jordan, there is a recognition that this work is about God, not Elijah, and that the work is going to continue. The ministry that was taking place in 850 BC was not the ministry of Elijah. It was the ministry of God. And Elijah just happened to be the one who was his tool during this time. It is a reminder to us that we are to be devoted with our lives to God. Never to any particular person. Never to any particular uh, movement but to God Almighty. That is where our lives are to be devoted. In Christianity today, we tend to get wrapped up in particular people. Uh, We have rock star celebrity pastors and uh, rock star celebrity musicians that we put on screens across 20 campuses on a Sunday morning with faces larger than life. And so many churches are built around a cult of personality where it is that person who is drawing people. And then what happens when that person leaves, when that person retires, when that person passes, or as is happening far too often, what happens when that person falls into sin? When the waters divide for Elisha, it is a reminder to us that there is no one in the kingdom of God who is irreplaceable, not even Elijah. The work of God continues on because it's God's work, not any person's work. Every person is replaceable within the work of God. It's his work. It's his kingdom. When those waters part, it's a reminder that God was at work 600 years before Elijah when those same waters parted so that Joshua could lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And when the waters part for Elisha, after Elijah's gone, it is a reminder that the work is going to continue on beyond past Elijah because this is the work of God. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, the gates of hell may prevail against a particular person, The gates of hell hell may prevail against a particular church, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the work of God. It is his work. And it's a reminder for us here at Friendship Church, isn't it? That as is true of any true church, this is God's work. And the people who are out in front, they'll come and they'll go, but they are not fundamental to what is going on here. I should say, we are not fundamental to what is going on here. God is the only thing that is fundamental to what is going on here. And it's his power, his mission, that are most important for us as a body. We're reminded as we look at Elijah leave and Elisha do the works of God, that it's God that is important in all of this. The ministry belongs to him. He is our focus. We are totally devoted to him. Not not to any person, not to any movement, but to God. We're reminded of this as well through the new Elijah. That's right, the new Elijah. 
when Elijah departs, we are reminded that 850 years later, there's going to be a new Elijah who is going to come on the scene in this exact same place that Elijah was drawn up to heaven. Who, who is this New Testament Elijah? Who is this new Elijah that we see in the Gospels? His name is John. And we refer to him as John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, John the Baptist's dad is told before John's birth that he will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus confirms in Matthew chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. He says there, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. 850 years after Elijah is called up to heaven, a new Elijah comes on the scene. His name is John the Baptist, and he even dressed the part. Uh, according to Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, we are told that, like Elijah, he lived in the wilderness. He wore garments made of hair, camel's hair, with a leather belt. We're told he ate locusts and wild honey. He followed in the wild man prophetic tradition of Elijah. Right? Like Elijah, John the Baptist also did all of his shopping at the wild man outlet. Right? That's, that's just the, who they were. He, he shares those physical traits. He is a wild man in the wilderness. And according to Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, when he comes on the scene, all of Israel, we're told, goes out to see him and hear him. And where do they go to see him? told that they go to the Jordan River in order to see him. Where the original Elijah was taken up to heaven 850 years earlier, the new Elijah comes on the scene. And what is the new Elijah all about, you guys? The new Elijah is all about being devoted to Jesus and pointing to Jesus. Every part of his life is about being devoted to Jesus and pointing to Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 30, the new Elijah, John the Baptist, says, He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Right? Everything in his life was about exalting and lifting up Jesus. And he says, I want to make more of him and I want to become less. In Mark chapter 1, verse 7, he says to the crowds that are following him, don't follow me. Follow the one who is coming after me because I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Everything about John the Baptist was devoted to Jesus. Everything about John the Baptist was devoted to calling attention to Jesus. And here is the key message of the entire Bible. The God that Elijah was fully devoted to and used his life to point to is the same as the Jesus that John the Baptist was devoted to and used his life to point to. Right, let me say that again because this is the key to the entire Bible. And this is why over the next few weeks we're going to celebrate Christmas. 
Because the God that Elijah was devoted to and pointed to is the same as the Jesus that John the Baptist was devoted to and pointed to. He is God in the flesh. And that's why we celebrate what we celebrate over the next few weeks. And that's why John the Baptist's life was entirely devoted to Jesus and appointing to Jesus. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Jesus was confused on multiple occasions in the Gospels for Elijah. When people are asked, hey, hey, who is this? One of the most frequent responses we see in the Gospels is, this is Elijah. Sometimes he's Elijah, and sometimes people think of him as a new Elijah, and sometimes think, people say he's a great prophet, but people often mistake him for Elijah. But the Gospels go out of their way in order to communicate to us this isn't Elijah. This isn't a new Elijah or a great Elijah. This isn't a great prophet. No, this is God in the flesh that has come. We see that in passages like Luke chapter 7. This is an amazing and astounding passage that we see in Luke 7, 11 through 17. And you can read that at some point on your own. But in that passage, Jesus raises a young boy from the dead, a young man from the dead. This young boy is the only child of a widow. And everything about the scene reminds us of what Elijah did in 1 Kings 17 when he raised the only child of a widow. In both situations, there is a woman who has gone through that unbelievably difficult loss of losing your spouse. They are now women in a society that is heavily male-dominated, trying to scrape by and make a living for them and their only child who is a son. In both situations, this widow now experiences perhaps an even greater loss than the loss of their spouse as they lose the only child that they have. In both situations, Elijah and Jesus commit an unclean act. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah commits an unclean act by actually touching the dead body of the boy. In, in Luke 7, Jesus commits an unclean act by touching the casket that the body laid on. Both were unclean in Jewish ceremonial law. In both situations, Elijah and Jesus speak words and the dead come back to life. And we are told in Luke chapter 7, as we're told in 1 Kings 17, that these men presented the young boy, the boy, back to his mother. It's actually very similar language that is used in these two passages about presenting the young man back to his mother. The situations are so similar that the Jews who are watching Jesus raise this young man near the town of Nain in Luke chapter 7, they, they think it's... They think they recognize what's going on here. And in verse 16, they say, a great prophet is among us. I, I think it's Elijah they probably have in mind. They have grown up hearing about this account, and as they watch Jesus do this, do this they say, wow, this seems really familiar. This is very Elijah-like. But in fact, it's the differences between the two accounts that is the greatest teaching. Because in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah enters that upper room with that boy, 
we're told that he cries out to the Lord, Oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And then in 1 Kings 17, 22, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah cried out to the Lord, and it's the Lord who healed this boy. Elijah had no power whatsoever in order to raise the dead. It is God who raised this dead boy. Elijah is simply the one who went to the Lord and asked him to do it. But in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus approaches that dead young man, it is a very different situation. And in Luke 7, 14, we're told that Jesus simply gave that young man a command. Young man, I say to you, arise. He just commands the young man to get up. And the young man gets up. Why the difference? The difference is there because Jesus is God in the flesh who has power over life and death. He simply speaks and the dead come to life. The difference is there because Jesus is the Lord that Elijah cried out to to raise that young boy in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's the difference where the key is here. Jesus is God in the flesh. This difference is seen even more clearly on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9, Jesus takes the three, the inner three with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go with him. And as they go up on the Mount, Jesus is transfigured. He begins to shine. His face, his clothes, they begin to shine. And in the midst of that shining time, Peter, James, and John suddenly realize Jesus isn't alone anymore. He's there having a conversation with Elijah and Moses, the two most significant and important figures to a Jew in Jesus' day, Elijah and Moses. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And as Peter sees Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they're having a conversation. Peter, who is always willing to talk, decides to make a suggestion. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 5, we read, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter says, This is great, Jesus. What wonderful planning. We have you three great men, and then we have the three of us who can go and build tents, or same word for tabernacles, for you three great men. Isn't it great that there's three of each so that we can get this job done? I, I think that Peter's comment is motivated by the most positive of motivations, but in fact, everything he says here is wrong. Right? What is Peter getting wrong in this situation? Peter sees Jesus, Moses, and Elijah as three of a kind. Three great men who all deserve shrines or tabernacles built for them up there on the mountain. But in fact, these are not three of a kind. God wants to be very clear here. These are two great prophets and the living Son of God. Jesus isn't a great man like Moses was a great man, like Elijah was a great man. 
Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 1, is the one who made Moses and Elijah. He is Moses and Elijah's rightful judge. Jesus is the one that Moses cried out to when the Red Sea needed to be parted. Jesus is the one that Elijah cried out to when fire needed to come from the sky and engulf that offering on Mount Carmel. Jesus is the living Son of God. He is not just a great man or a great prophet like these other two. And God comes in response to what Peter has said in order to make that clear. We're told in Mark chapter 9 that the cloud of God's presence comes upon that mountain. The cloud of God's presence that hasn't been seen in Israel since the days of Ezekiel comes upon the Mount of Transfiguration. I have to believe that there is this heaviness and this holiness that comes with God's actual presence upon the mountain. And he speaks and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This isn't a great man or a great prophet like Moses and Elijah. This is the actual son of God. God in the flesh. Listen to him. Devote your lives to him. What was the message on the mountain? Jesus isn't like Moses and Elijah. These aren't three of a kind. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator and the redeemer. He's the ultimate judge. He is God in the flesh, the Lord of hosts. And he is to be worshiped. And like John the Baptist, the new Elijah We're to devote our entire lives to him. We're we're to devote our entire lives, like John the Baptist, to pointing to him. I, I want that to be true in my life. I want my life to be devoted, single minded devotion to Jesus. I I want my life to point to him in everything that I do. Right? Anyone else? There are a number of people in here who I know join me in wanting your life to be used for that same purpose. Single-minded devotion to Jesus, fully pointing to him in everything that we do. But I have this challenge in my life, and I think you have it too. No, I know you have it too. That is, there is a part of you that the Bible calls the flesh that, that every day fights this desire to be devoted to Jesus and to call attention to him. And instead, it wants to be devoted to me. My flesh wants life to be about me and the things that I want. It, it wants all attention to be paid to me. And I have that battle every day between my true desire that I'd be devoted to Jesus in all things and pay all attention to him and my flesh, which desires that life would be all about me and would be devoted to me. How do I win that battle? Tomorrow, how do I win that battle so that my life can be about single-minded devotion to Jesus and everything that I do? Let me give you a practice for this week. Something I I would love for you to do over the course of this week. This practice doesn't come from me or else I wouldn't give it to you. (laughs) That wouldn't be worth a whole lot. The practice comes from Jesus. And I want to encourage you this week to every day when you wake up, 
Begin your day by running what you're going to do that day through the filter of the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. I'd encourage you to run everything through the Lord's Prayer. That's why Jesus gave it to us. But particularly today, I'd encourage you to focus on those first three petitions. What do they say? Right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Exalted be your name in each and everything that happens this day. Your kingdom come. Lord, let your kingdom rule take place in my life in every situation. Let your kingdom rule be established in the lives of those that I'm around. And let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, you've expressed your will. Let that be lived out in each and every situation that I am a part of this day. And over the course of this week, as you're going through each and every day, spend time praying through that filter. Run your day through that filter. Lord, I know I have a meeting at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Run that meeting through the filter of, of God's name being exalted of his kingdom being established, of his will being done within that meeting. I'm going to eat dinner with my family tomorrow night, I think, I hope, right? if the Lord wills. Run that through the filter. Lord, how at dinner are we going to glorify and exalt your name? Lord, we, we want your kingdom to be established through family dinner. We want your will to be done. Run everything through that filter because it is what Jesus has given to us in order to battle the flesh in our life and turn our minds and our hearts towards him. Let, let me just encourage you this week with that practice, constantly running things through those first three petitions of the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer and watch God's Spirit use it in order to dry up self-interest in your life and bring you to a place where in every activity you do, you more and more have the heart of John the Baptist. Jesus, in what we are doing today, you become greater. I, I want to become less. God, you become greater. You become the one who is the focus. I want to become less. Let's pray towards that end together as we continue to worship God through song today. Father, we want to pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. You have told us when you pray, pray then like this. You've given us this prayer specifically to battle the flesh in our lives and to work uh, and to bring about more and more of the spirit's concern to, to decrease our self-interest and increase our interest in Jesus and the gospel. And so we pray that as we run everything through this filter this week, that more and more our heart's attitude would be, Lord, you must become greater. And we must become less. As we approach this Christmas season, we do so recognizing that the new Elijah leads us and guides us in how we want to live our lives. That the baby who was born wasn't a great prophet, wasn't just a great man, that he was God in the flesh who lives today and saves us from our sins. And Lord, as we move into this Christmas season, we want to be led and guided by these principles that life is all about you. And now we sing and we exalt your name because you are the one that life is all about. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me and let's praise our God together.